0: The more therapy you have, the more frequently you have it, the longer it goes on, the better you do. And Susan Lazar's work shows that overall, the more therapy you have, the fewer days you take off from work, the less you have physical illness, the less likely you are to have a drug addiction, the less likely you are to go to jail. So society in the long run benefits enormously from front-ending psychotherapy.
1: Therapist Uncensored brings you decades of experience with interpersonal psychotherapy, relational neuroscience, modern attachment, and anything else they think will be helpful in healing humans. Now, here your co host Dr. Ann Kelly and Sue Marriott. Hey, everybody. I am so pleased to introduce you, our guest today, Dr. Nancy McWilliams. Applause! You guys are going to love her. Would you mind, let's get started maybe with just saying a little bit about yourself, yeah,
0: I've been a therapist since I guess my first patient I saw was in nineteen
1: seventy two when I was still in graduate school. When I was in my I, I think we call that seasoned, is that right? I hope so. Seasoned therapist. <laughs> no,
0: grown. But, uh, I have always been interested in individual differences and I really didn't discover psychoanalysis until I was in college in uh, as a political theory major, and a professor suggested that I was pretty psychologically attuned, and so perhaps I should do a political theory thesis on Sigmund Freud's political theory, and that got me fascinated with psychoanalytic ideas, and I eventually decided I wanted to be a therapist, and from there found myself eventually at Rutgers University, where I majored in personality. And this was the early 70s. There was a lot of opportunity to get clinical training then. Uh, My degree is not in clinical, actually. It's in personality. But I had a lot of clinical training from people with all kinds of orientations. And eventually, I ended up teaching at Rutgers University in a clinical psych graduate program. That has always been just one day a week. And the rest of the days, I'm a full-time therapist. These days, I do somewhat more supervision than I do ongoing psychotherapy, but it's always been a combination of teaching, psychotherapy, and supervision, and I like all three of those roles. I also write and... Uh, That has given me great pleasure. My students pushed me to write starting in the 1980s when they got sick of hearing me bitch that there should be a book like the one they eventually pushed me to write, and that moved my career in all kinds of interesting directions.
1: So you guys have to know that she's being quite humble, I think, and and anybody who's ever studied, any therapist group I've ever led, study groups or consulted with, will be very familiar with your work because... It is the first thing that I will always assign because it is it's one of the most important texts, certainly as a student, but also any therapist. If you're not familiar with Nancy McWilliams book, Psychoanalytic Diagnosis, and there's an updated one that you did a revision from the first one. And so is it still called Psychoanalytic Diagnosis? Yes, it is. Awesome. So, every therapist that's listening, you guys know I don't gush that much unless I really mean it, and this one I really mean. And part of why I'm so pleased and honored to have Dr. McWilliams on our show is that we often talk about science and we talk about different techniques and practices, but I think it's always very, very important to keep it grounded in depth theory so that we're not just doing techniques. And right now, even I would say that there's a trend towards, you know, people calling themselves attachment based therapists or trauma informed therapists. And it's unclear what that even means. And so that's a long way of introducing you. That I guess my first question would be how do you see sort of the psychoanalytic take on some of these? As you know, the podcast is about interpersonal neurobiology and attachment and trying to bring this science out to the public. This will add the piece of the depth psychology and the history of what we know in working with individuals. So I guess right now, how do you see those two things coming together?
0: Well, that's a huge question. Yes, it is, it is, it is, it is. Anybody who is really interested in helping people is very interested in how all that comes together. And it hasn't come together very evenly yet across the field because we are running into a kind of opposite movement from insurance companies, drug companies, and some academically oriented people to try to define psychotherapy in terms of just techniques that you apply
1: in the short term. Yes, I think they call that evidence-based therapy or... <laughs> well, that's
0: the code word really for short-term uh, <laughs> randomized controlled trial studies kinds of science, which is only one part of science, of course. It's interesting for me, as a person who is both in an academic role in a major university and is primarily a therapist, I understand the kinds of issues academics are up against. They're required to turn out a whole lot of short-term empirical studies. So what they can study is how a particular technique reduces symptoms in the short term. For therapists, that tends to be not very interesting because therapists know that reducing anxiety in the short term, for example, certainly is helpful to people, but sometimes people need to feel a little bit more anxiety about their situation before they're motivated to change it. Sometimes people will show on a randomized control trial that their Beck depression inventory score went down in the short term. But what if they're a person who's been using denial for years about a major loss and they really need to feel their sadness. They'll probably still score a little lower on the BDI, but they'll be moving forward in therapy because as therapists, what we keep our eye on are things like, are we helping the patient with more secure attachment, more capacity to trust when it's realistic to trust We want to help them with affect regulation. We want to help them with a sense of self-constancy and constancy of other people. We want to help them with self-esteem, with having realistic and reliable self-esteem, with making decent choices in life on their own behalf, with being able to look at themselves and appreciate that other people have different subjectivities, in other words, to mentalize other people to be resilient after stress, to accept what can't be changed, and grieve and move on. Those are larger mental health goals, and that's what most of us get in the business to help people with. There is a lot of scientific research relevant to that, certainly all the attachment research, certainly all the trauma research, which is why concern for the whole person is now sort of coming back under the rubric of trauma theory or attachment theory, but it's been part of psychoanalytic theory for more than 100 years. It's been part of the humanistic tradition for at least 60 years. John Norcross would be a very good exemplar of that, and he's done impressive research on evidence-based relationships as opposed to EBTs, evidence-based techniques or therapies. There are a number of people who do research on personality, on defenses, on people's capacity to tolerate affect. There are some studies of more complex therapies, like transference-focused therapies, dialectical behavior therapies, that look much more at the whole person. Also, I want to mention the neuroscientists. I'm particularly fond. I was fond as a person of the late Jacques Panksepp and all of his work about the different brain systems in the mammalian emotional system that are important in psychotherapy. So this is not new to therapists, but I think what's new is that we have to fight back against the trend of cost cutters to try to... Define psychotherapy as a technique that you apply to a DSM symptom complex, and I I think think about DSM symptom complexes
1: too. (laughs) Strike that if you would. (laughs) Absolutely. Uh, We. I'm hoping that uh, we'll get to one example, even particularly that I know that you've talked about and that people are interested in is being able to. Break down narcissism a little bit as an example of the different kind of thinking that is typically done by people measuring it. Some of what, you know, one way I think of it is, you know, Freud was a neuroscientist, right? And so in some ways, many of his ideas are being sort of updated and validated.
0: Yeah. And some are being scientifically disproven too. <laughs> For example, he believed that trauma could eventually be remembered, and some trauma can. But in some severe trauma, the glucocorticoids that are released shut down the hippocampus, and the hippocampus is the part of the brain responsible for episodic memory, the memory of I was there and it happened to me. So you can have been traumatized, and your hippocampus gets shut down, and you won't ever get episodic memory you won't ever remember yourself in that situation and remember it with the kind of vividness that most people remember ordinary experiences but you will have body memory and you'll have emotional memory your body will show as Bessel van der Kolk talks about what happened to you in some way and your emotional system will show you what happened but it's a fruitless task to go trying to recall some repressed memories, and Freud actually got to that position at the end of his life in analysis, terminable and interminable. He says, it seems some memories can't be recalled. best we can do is reconstruct what probably happened and help the person move on. So in that sense, he changed his mind, but his theory still suggests that repression is a major dynamic and you have to undo it, and you can lose a lot of time going on trauma hunts.
1: Not only that, it, it can be quite dangerous, I think, re-traumatize people. And also kind of um, the whole old movement of false memory syndrome is real, that if clients are very suggestible and memory is suggestible, and so if I'm, I'm positive that it's there and we're looking for it, you know, we can easily construct a narrative to make it all make sense. But that's very different than an emerging bottom-up.
0: Yes. I mean, what I tend to say to patients is we, we know you were traumatized. Pretty sure you were sexually traumatized, but we may never know by who or under what circumstances, and we don't want to come to any false closure. This was something that Freud himself came to eventually. He originally believed that all so-called hysterical symptoms were caused by childhood molestation, and he eventually decided that although he didn't throw that out as a probability, he decided that sometimes what the patients had present were what he called screen memories, So 100 years later, we went through the same transition from when we first rediscovered dissociation and childhood trauma in the 80s, when Sybil came out, when the Vietnam vets started to talk, when feminists started talking about how common sexual abuse in childhood is, we sort of rediscovered there were dissociatively organized people out there, dissociatively damaged people. And for a while, we all went on trying to abreact and you know, recreate the situation and we discovered we were re-traumatizing people and we went through exactly the same evolution that Freud went through a hundred years before, which is a little bit depressing actually. <laughs> We can't be a cumulative science in some way.
1: <laughs> well, that's one of the things I'm so excited about bringing you on, because it really brings a, a different voice that has that history. So hopefully we can be ahead of this and not do it all over again. It would be nice. Yes, yes. And, you know, I think about in working with trauma, sometimes the way I think of it is you don't have to have the narrative, and you probably you might not have the narrative, but What you do know is enough, which is that something so terrible happened that your mind gets confused or that you lose contact with trusting yourself and trusting your perceptions. And that in and of itself, that's trauma, period, no matter what other story is there.
0: Yes. To make devoted connections with people. People sometimes come in and they want a quick fix of some symptom complex, but Mostly, they want someone who will respect them, be curious about them, be interested in them, be on their side, confront them if necessary with their self-deludedness.
1: Right. Not just support. I love the word devoted. Sometimes people really look askew at long-term therapy, and the word devoted really begins to speak to that. Can you say a little bit about the value of long-term therapy and people who might be a little suspicious of the therapist's benefit of that?
0: Yeah, well, it's certainly true that some people have misused therapy to you know, keep people coming and without having to move ahead and get new patients and so forth. But I think that's a very small group because therapists, we want our patients to be better. We want them to move on, to, to find their wings, to leave us, just as we want our children to grow up. But it's also true that we're in a political problem here because all of the incentives for holding costs down are short-term, when in fact, good psychotherapy holds down costs in the long-term. And there's a lot of literature about that. Susan Lazar, a few years ago, accumulated it. Most of it's not done in the United States, because research in the United States has not been particularly influenced by the idea of looking at long-term processes or affective processes so much.
1: Is it a pharmaceutical thing? Is it an academic, resistant, you know, money? Combination of many things. First
0: of all, Susan Lazar's book, and for that matter, Seligman's original consumer report study found that the more therapy you have, the more frequently you have it, the longer it goes on, the better you do. And Susan Lazar's work shows that overall, the more therapy you have, the fewer days you take off from work the less you have physical illness the less likely you are to have a drug addiction the less likely you are to go to jail so society in the long run benefits enormously from front-ending psychotherapy but governments are short-term you get elected promising to save money in the next few years insurance company uh, employees get evaluated with how much money did you save the stockholders this year. Drug companies have an interest in defining things simply symptomatically so that they can market a drug for them. And as I said, academics have many incentives to do short-term kinds of work. So the larger picture gets lost, which is that people need relationships. And even the APA, the American Psychological Association, put out a press release in 2012 talking about how all the empirical literature taken as a whole shows that what's most important in psychotherapy is the relationship and the personality issues between the two parties to the relationship. So we know this. It's just not convenient for short-term cost cutters.
1: You know, the way I think of it is, um, especially in group, I do a lot of group, but but individual too, it's sort of a nutrient bath. <laughs> you know, we might not know all of what someone needs, but just sitting in this safe, contained environment and that where we're both there for that person, it just it fills people up. And it makes sense to me that if you're looking at the right things, you can find the data. That's really great. And I have a, a short question, and then I want to move, if it's okay with you, to be able to show your thinking by talking about narcissism. But I had a question about negative transference. And because in some ways we're talking about the safe relationship and all of that, is there such a thing? Do you value it? Is it, is it a therapist's defense to call it a negative transference when really they've just lost relationship with their client? You know, I didn't know if you had any thoughts about that.
0: Well, it's a complex issue. Of course, sometimes people are angry at you for perfectly good reason (laughs) that you've done something wrong, but People also come with negative expectations if they've had negative histories. I mean, from a learning theory point of view or from a psychodynamic point of view, you would expect that. And a part of safety is the patients being able to name all kinds of negative feelings and have them accepted and not retaliated against. So some people think these days that making a good alliance is a matter of just being very nice. It's more than that. It's a matter of creating a space in which the patient can tell you what you've done wrong, tell you that you remind them of their controlling or negligent parent, yell at you (laughs) if they need to vent some affect that's extremely strong. And the more they're safe doing that, the better the therapy goes.
1: You're right. It's authenticity. It's real relationship. You're making room for the whole self it makes me think too. of, you know, a good enough mother is a mother that can be loved and hated. And so a good, a good enough therapist can experience the full range and be loved and hated because certainly both of those things happen in the room, you know, big love and big hate (laughs) at times.
0: (laughs) Again, contemporary approaches to psychotherapy, they often seem to be invented by academics who don't have much experience in the role and there's a good reason for that it used to be that academics who wanted to study clinical psychology had a lot of clinical experience but now it's become so hard in academia to move forward to uh, promotion and tenure that that would be professional suicide to have a practice Mm -hmm. so many academics have an idea about therapy that it's just a friendly connection where you support certain kinds of tasks for patients And they don't have the experience of sitting with miserable, devaluing, often hateful people that you have to find some way to love. Mm -hmm. I don't know if you know uh, Laurie Gottlieb's recent popular book, Maybe You Should Talk to Someone. It's Uh a beautiful uh, description of what therapy is really like. Oh, good. I would recommend it to your listeners. So, Laura Gottlieb? Laurie, L-O-R-I, Gottlieb. Maybe awesome. you should talk to someone. <laughs> That's wonderful. Her own therapy, her own therapist, her own patients, and what it's really like. Often, sitting in a room being overwhelmed with toxic affects that you have to take some positive place. There is wonderful research on that in Germany, by the way. Reiner Krause, a videotaped therapist and patients. And the therapists had different theoretical orientations, but they were all experienced therapists. And the patient had treatment-resistant problems. In other words, they had flunked a couple of previous therapies. <laughs> and he videotaped these therapeutic couples, and he found that in those therapies where both the therapist and the patient agreed that significant progress had been made, what the video showed was that the patient came in with one affect on their face, and the therapist briefly marked it on their face, but their face showed something different. That The therapist responded with what Krause called abnormal affect. Because what's normal is if somebody's enraged at you, you get enraged back and you defend yourself. Or what's normal might be if the person comes in feeling terribly shamed and talking about being a loser, that the therapist feels contempt for this shameful person. But in psychotherapy, we don't do that. We take in all the bad stuff. The patient is in a rage. We might show curiosity on our face about what made them so angry. How can we understand that better? Or if they come in feeling shamed, we might show anger that somebody shamed them instead of what they're expecting. So at a completely nonverbal level, there's an affective right brain to right brain communication going on that's disconfirming the patient's expectations.
1: That is so important what you're describing, and that's what makes it therapy rather than just support, is that we're intentionally moving the person along and giving, I think of it as scaffolding, and by them evoking something different than normal, like what you would do in a supportive therapy, either a fake, everything's fine, (laughs) like we have to be in it enough to be able to make that connection and then help them move, that's that's the way I think. It. That, it's that's beautiful. A lot of
0: training to learn how yes. to do that, and that's why it's so exhausting to be a therapist, because it's not normal to take in all this negative stuff and keep, in a disciplined way, finding the lovable person under there, finding a way to take it somewhere positive.
1: Absolutely, and you know, one of the—I can't remember who there had a really good article on this—but that part of what we call difficult patients typically are the ones that evoke. Parts of ourselves that we don't like, our own ugliness, our own badness, all of that. And again, that goes back to long term treatment, but also long term treatment of ourselves, you know, us doing our own work and really, you know, a lifelong process, I would say. Yeah,
0: but even in short term treatment, it's valuable to a Short intervention, you can help a person turn just a couple of degrees a different way. Just because I'm an analyst doesn't mean I have the contempt for all the short term treatment. I think they're very often extremely helpful to people. It's just what we look at is a little bit different from what most researchers study.
1: Yeah, I totally agree that even in the short term, if you're aware and sensitive to the unconscious and to defenses and things like that, you can still do the short term work, but you'll just be that much more effective.
0: I I think Um, you will be more effective if you get a sense of what are this patient's defenses? And how can I take those into account? Because some things that I might say, would just get them to be more defensive, even if they're right and brilliant. So you mentioned narcissism with narcissistic patients, for example. You can't just say to a narcissistic man who's very arrogant, oh, I think you've got you know, some social anxiety. <laughs> he will feel criticized. He will devalue you. He'll probably leave the treatment because he's not there to find that there's anything wrong with him. He's trying to protect a grandiose sense of himself. You might be able, though, to make some kind of dent by saying something like, you know, And it has to be true, by the way. You're such an interesting person. You're so competent in the world. You've accomplished so much. You're very socially uh, competent. At the same time, I I'm, think I'm sensing that you have some social anxiety. No one would ever know it, but am, am I right about that? So if you package it in, in uh, something protect, that doesn't protect, attack their grandiose defenses they might be able to acknowledge something that then hangs their self-esteem more on being honest with themselves than on all the dishonest ways that narcissistic people are likely to try to protect themselves. It's, it's, art.
1: it's so lovely because what you're describing is, you know, sometimes I'll call it like a soft toss, but we don't want to hit the back of someone's brain where that then the amygdala is firing and there's threat. So, And some of what that example that you just gave, some of what we're doing is we're, it's like we're petting the mind and like, everything's okay. I'm safe. I'm a safe person. You're okay. I'm not going to criticize you. Like, that's kind of what's going on underneath is that like, I see you and I see this value so that they are receptive then by the time that we get in the thing that's disconfirmed, you know, that's might be ego dystonic, you know, like different from what they see themselves. Like now we have established yourself as a team, and not a threat. So by not having activated the threat, now we're actually able to move. It's something like that.
0: Yeah, or I'll give you another example relevant for narcissism. Very often, narcissistically organized people come in and they spend the session complaining about other people. My husband this, my husband that, on and on and on and on. And the therapist feels in terrible mind. Well, do I empathize with how upset... She is it her husband? Or do I try to suggest that maybe she should be more empathic herself to him and see him as a separate person who might have issues? And people can get very paralyzed in that. I found that when I'm sitting with somebody who is complaining, 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 after I just tolerate hearing all that venting for a while, I tend to ask kind of supportively, did you make your needs explicit to him? And what I tend to get is, what do you mean needs? Because you have to kind of understand the structure of narcissism here. Narcissistic people are so busy protecting this idea of a perfect self that has no needs and no flaws that they alienate all kinds of other people because they can't apologize. That would mean that they're admitting they have a flaw. They can't thank, because that would be gratitude. It would mean they had a need. And they can't ask for what they want. Uh, Instead, they criticize. And their idea of what a good relationship is, is somebody else intuits what they need and offers it without their asking. And they have this mantra of, you know, he should just know, or she should just know. So when you ask a kind of innocent question like, well, did you make your needs explicit? What you tend to get is, what do you mean needs? So you get more, obviously, the defenses against being an ordinary human being who needs something from one's partner. And then you can say, wow, seems like you had a very strong reaction to the idea that you would have ordinary human needs. Tell me more about that. And that way you can maybe get under some of the narcissistic defenses. Essentially, a narcissistic person will experiment with just asking for something instead of being in a sulk that the partner should have divined what they need and offered it unasked. And they find that life goes better that way. Now, with other patients, you don't have to do that. They don't come in and spend the whole session just griping about other people and making you feel as if, you know, this therapy is not about I don't have your wife here. <laughs> this is this is you were trying to talk about. Mm-hmm. So it's very challenging, and I think different therapists work out different ways of dealing with this. You talk about my sense of uh, psychoanalytic history. Freud thought that narcissistic patients were untreatable. He felt that they they didn't love, and that the engine of psychotherapy is the patient's caring about. You and what you think. And if you're a person who is walled off against normal dependency, how do you get anything going in the relationship? Now, since the 1950s, when we started seeing more narcissism in people because societies uprooted and self esteem became more problematic for people, we began to get writing like Heinz Kohuts and Otto Kernberg's and numerous other people that tried to help us find ways to make it possible for people who hated the idea of needing help to get help. And we have now many different ways of coming at it, but they all require a certain kind of art and a capacity to find something lovable in a person who is often very difficult to like Mm -hmm.
1: And one of the things I love about your writing is that you always sort of start out with the normalcy of traits or so narcissistic traits that we all have. And as a matter of fact, it can be healthy to have some, you know, healthy narcissism. And also you speak about the person so compassionately that this is a wound, that these difficult people are wounded, and that that's some of what can help us stay connected and help us work through all the stuff they're throwing at us to push us away unconsciously and to protect themselves unconsciously. So I just sort of want to say that again, because people might, may be identifying as that difficult person and or be in a relationship with one of these difficult people. And I think that people are beginning to hear how you think. Would you mind just saying a little bit about borderline personality disorder? Because that's also something that people are always very interested in hearing about. And especially with the dysregulation and the amygdala and the science, you know, that's a diagnosis that's really changed in how we think about it.
0: Yeah, I'm old enough to remember the evolution of the idea that there was a kind of borderline area between what were then called the neuroses and what were called the psychoses, where people, they weren't crazy enough to be considered psychotic, but they were somewhat more intensely disorganized than people who were neurotic, even though they tended to come for so-called neuroses back in the day. And therapists started writing about that. I think the first article was 1938, and then it reached an apogee in 1970 with the work of Kernberg. And Kernberg's contributions were in this group that therapists kind of identified mainly because they got worse rather than better in ordinary psychodynamic treatment. I mean, Marshall Linehan can tell you how completely useless for ordinary psychodynamic treatment was for many years and how she just made a pledge that if she ever got out of it alive, she would develop a therapy for people like her. I admire her very much for that. Mm. I also admire Kernberg for picking up things like, there's a problem of self-cohesion in people that we, we think of as on this borderline. And there's a tendency to use more primitive defenses like splitting into good and bad, like primitive forms of projection, where the therapist may be all bad, the patient may be terrified of being victimized, and so on. Mm -hmm. Um, But they, they haven't lost touch with reality. They're people who are in the same consensual reality with the rest of us. And one of his contributions that I found extremely useful was that Prior to his writing, people thought that, well, maybe what we mean by borderline is people who are on the border of schizophrenia. And so we have to treat them like people whose defenses are very fragile, and you don't want to undo them. And Kernberg's contribution was people that we have come to think of as borderline, they don't have fragile defenses. They have powerful but primitive defenses. And you really have to engage with them, or else you're just, if you just tell them, well, what comes to mind about that? How are you feeling about that? It just goes on forever. And he began recommending that you work much more in the here and now that you not try to figure out all the problems of the family at the beginning of therapy, because you have people who are needing to make their parents all good, all bad, or or they're completely vague about them. And he was the first one to try to develop a more, focus therapy for the kinds of problems that people that had come to be seen as borderline present. When they did DSM-3 in the 1980s, the story behind it is that the people who were more clinically oriented in the task force on personality disorders said, you know, you can't just label different kinds of personality without looking at whether the person's more at a neurotic level or more a borderline level. Because we've learned that you work very differently with borderline patients. You don't put them on the couch. You don't make these same kinds of interpretations to them. And the DSM people didn't want anything dimensional. I mean, they didn't want the idea that this is a kind of level of organization between neurotic and psychotic. But there was enough empirical data about this group that had come to be called borderline that they couldn't say that there's no evidence base for this concept. And they defined a type of personality that they called borderline, which really we would have up till then called a a more severe version of hysterical psychology. The version of borderline that involves a very dramatic kind of quality, intensity of affect some exhibitionistic behaviors, acting out, that kind of thing. And there was better research on that because people had studied borderline patients in hospitals and those were the behaviors that were most upsetting to them. But up till then, we'd have the concept that there were people in the more schizoid or avoidant realm that could be borderline or obsessive-compulsive people who could be borderline and so on. So I much prefer the older concept that basically says, you know, you're struggling with earlier stuff, with basic attachment issues, probably trauma. I mean, there's now a lot of study of of the DSM version of Borderline that finds very significant trauma histories in almost all people with that diagnosis. I'm thinking of Russell Mears' work, for example. So there has been, to some extent, a slow integration the literature on severe trauma and the literature on borderline psychology, which at one time did not exist. I remember having a uh, a seminar with James Masterson, and he was talking about his theory of how people became borderline, which had to do with mothers loved it when the kid was sort of symbiotically attached, and then started punishing the kid when they started to separate. A theory I don't agree with, but it led to a certain kind of technique that was people were finding very helpful. And I remember someone in the class saying, well, what about early sexual abuse? Couldn't that contribute to developing a borderline personality? And Masterson said, that's interesting. Nobody's ever asked me that question before. <laughs> this was probably around 1976. <laughs> and that we've seen a sea change in that. Mm-hmm. That's a radical change. We were Good. looking developmentally for everything.
1: I mean, our technology has gotten better as far as what, like you're saying, like what to do and how to treat, and the compassion is back, you know, because borderline used to be such a throwaway diagnosis. And now I, I really see it as it's like the mind has been impacted by the trauma. And so we see these more primitive behaviors only because it's a, again, it's a bottom up thing, and which is why that we, the treatment has to be a little different.
0: Yeah. You never should have made it a wastebasket category. That's just a way of saying some people are too difficult to pay any attention to.
1: Or it's a way of saying, I don't know how to fix you, so and I don't want to feel that, so, <laughs> so off with you. <laughs> it has to be all you. We've talked a lot to the therapists out there, but for the folks that are either in therapy themselves or a ton of people that are watching that are working on their own stories, From a master clinician, what would you advise for people to get the most out of their therapy or any close relationship that they're in? Do you have thoughts about that? I've never been asked that question, actually. The first thing that comes to mind is try to be
0: brave enough to be honest. It's amazing how many people keep secrets from their therapists, And despite the fact that we may be very intuitive, sensitive people, We often are completely blindsided when they finally tell us. As a person trained as an analyst, I'm still kind of a devotee of Freud's basic rule, try to say everything. Now, in your relationships with your partners, your children, your colleagues, you can't say everything, but you can try to be honest in ways that are tactful and that will bring you closer than if you start walling off. And one of the ways you can use therapy is to try to figure out ways you could actually say what you're feeling that won't be taken as an attack. You mentioned that we treat a lot of people who are in relationship to people with narcissistic issues. I enjoy working with that group because I can coach them a little bit about I mean, very often, let's take the common situation of a narcissistic, let's make it a narcissistic man whose wife is always trying to do right, and she keeps getting criticized. And back in the day, he idealized her, and so she felt loved. But when he stops idealizing her, all she gets is criticism. So she's trying to read him and do things right to try to bring back the guy she felt loved by. And I coach her a little bit. Well, what if when you saw him sniffing around the kitchen, instead of trying to cook faster, you just asked him, would you like dinner a little earlier? You look a little hungry. If he says no, just take your time. And then if he blows up later, you say, gee, that's, that's a shame. If only you had told me, yeah, I would like to eat earlier. I would have been happy to do that, but I can't read your mind. Mm-hmm. And. Eventually, in my experience, a narcissistic person, when people don't try to act on the narcissistic person's idea of how they should be, but instead, simply and without apology, things like, well, you know, when you brought me the flowers, but you didn't apologize, it was hard to warm up to you. If you had just said, I'm bringing you flowers because I don't feel good about how I treated you, that would have made all the difference. Eventually, that goes in. In the areas where narcissistic people can't express gratitude or can't express regrets, you can help them learn how to do that. And they actually like themselves better because they are being more honest when they do
1: that. Right. I think that's real. And they can feel people on eggshells and things like that around them. And I, I was imagining this uh patient that you were describing, you know, this imaginary patient that you were describing. And I was like, so rooting for her because I can also was empathizing with how hard that is on her and how easy it would be to take in that criticism and to, you know, get disorganized herself. So I was really happy that, that this imaginary person was seeing you because I was imagining you keeping her together. <laughs> And it takes that. It really takes that. Because we're not going to be able to generate it from inside of ourselves. That's where the relationship comes in. Most of us will not be able to just have that natural, you know, nurturing voice naturally happen, or that dose of reality come in that you could trust. So that's beautiful. Now, you'd mentioned doing consultation. Is that anything that you do more widely than locally? Or is it all live? Or
0: I do it with people all over the world. To my surprise, my books are in 20 languages now. So I regularly talk to a person in Norway. For a long time, I supervised a person in Korea. I have a couple of Chinese supervisees, a man in Iran, a couple of people in Canada. So a woman in South Africa. It's been very uh, moving to me to hear...
1: Comes I would not be surprised at all if you didn't get some inquiries. And I love you naming those countries. We are so proud to be heard in 172 countries. So it would not surprise me at all. And I love us mentioning, you know, the worldwide audience, because that's so important. And people are interested in this material. So if anybody would like to reach you, how might they go about that?
0: Just email me, nancymcw at aol.com.
1: She's got the old AOL address. That's awesome. AOL
0: Dinosaur. If they want to find out where I'm speaking, they can go to my website, which is nancymcwilliams.com, and hit calendar, which I don't always keep updated
1: as well as I should, but it generally has where I'm speaking and when. Absolutely. And I really highly recommend it. I've seen her speak a couple of times, actually, and you're going to get so much from it. And then again, want to go back to your book, Psychoanalytic Diagnosis, just cannot recommend it enough. And I'm sure that you can hear some of her thinking and why that it is so valuable for us to be able to see our clients in this whole way and really shore us up as the clinician. I so appreciate you. Thank you so much for coming on and sharing your incredible wisdom and experience. Thank you, Sue, for
0: having me. It's been a pleasure.
1: Therapist Uncensored is Ann Kelly and Sue Marriott. This podcast is edited by Jack Anderson.